So I, I rode my bicycle for a year in 2010 uh, from uh, Canada to Colombia, and as part of that journey, I discovered that basically a billion people in the world didn't have uh, access to clean drinking water. So I began this journey and did some higher level education and been on a series of trips with my friends in the last six years. That's all led us to this, to this spot now where we've become very interested in a small scale uh, decentralized desalinization projects. It's really the future of water. Hi everyone, I'm glad you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. I always want to help us understand every word of God that's in the Word of God. God has so many amazing things He wants to say to us every day. We'll take the time to read and listen and try to work them into our lives. My objective is always the same. It's disciples making disciples and who plant churches that plant churches. So in this way we can see Jesus be a beautiful grassroots thing that goes anywhere and everywhere all over the world. Now Matthew 16 says that the Pharisees came to him requesting a sign. He answered and he said to them, when it is evening you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be foul weather today the sky is red and threatening. You hypocrites, you know how to discern the sky, but you can't discern the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. And he left them and departed. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were working together. They had a deep fear amongst themselves because they were losing their power. Now they were longtime enemies, but they came together to team up <laughs> against Jesus, which is saying a lot because these groups were diametrically opposed to one another. The Pharisees lived according to the smallest points of the oral and scribal law. The Sadducees received only the written words from the Hebrew scriptures. The Pharisees believed in angels and the resurrection. The Sadducees did not did not. Paul brings this up. The Pharisees were not a political party and were prepared to live under any government that would leave them alone to practice the religion the way that they wanted to. The Sadducees were aristocrats and collaborated with the Romans to keep their wealth and their power. The Pharisees looked for and longed for the Messiah. The Sadducees did not. Yet for all their differences, Jesus brought them together, not in a good way. They came together to oppose Jesus because Jesus threatened their power. In testing him, he asked them if they should show him a sign. Now, Jesus had done many signs, and they had remained unconvinced. And Jesus had fed 5,000 and fed 4,000 and healed mute people and deaf people and blind people and even raised people from the dead. They still didn't believe. Jesus had already been asked for a sign in Matthew 12, and in response, he had already pointed them to the sign of Jonah. Now tradition held that a sign done on earth could be a counterfeit from Satan, but signs done from heaven coming in and from the sky were to be assumed to be from God. Now he says, you hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the sign of the times. Jesus condemned their hypocrisy. They felt confident about predicting the weather from the signs they saw around them but they were blind to the signs regarding Jesus' 
messianic credentials right before their eyes. <laughs> they couldn't see the obvious. So Jesus wasn't the only one to notice this hypocrisy. The Jews of Jesus' day had a proverb saying that if all the hypocrites in the world were divided into ten parts, Jerusalem would contain nine of the ten parts. You can't discern the sign of the times. Jesus said this of the religious leaders of his own day regarding the signs of his first coming. There were prophecies, circumstances, and evidences that should have made it clear to them as signs of the times that the Messiah had come. Many people today are just as blind to the sign of the times regarding the second coming of Jesus. There are so many apparent signs right now. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This statement of Jesus reminds us that the sign alone doesn't convert people. It's too easy to place our confidence in signs and wonders as tools to bring people to faith in Jesus. They don't always do that. The problem isn't that the signs are weak themselves, but that a wicked and adulterous generation needs them again and again and again. It doesn't matter how many miracles and signs people see, it won't necessarily help them believe. Jesus promised a sign that would have power to bring people to faith, his resurrection. He previously mentioned that the sign of the prophet Jonah in Matthew 12 clearly explaining it at his, at his coming resurrection. Now, we remember some of the similarities between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah sacrificed himself that others would be saved. Jonah disappeared from all human view in doing this. Jonah was sustained the days that he could not be seen. Jonah came back after three days as back from the dead. Jonah preached repentance. Now verses 5 through 12, now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus being aware of it said to them, oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up how is it that you do not understand what i did not speak to you concerning bread but but beware of the leaven of the pharisees and the sadducees what's going on here then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what they thought. He said, beware of this. You see, the preceding conflict Jesus had was with the religious leaders, and he gave them the metaphor of leaven. It's because you've taken no bread. This was a strange concern after Jesus had in the recent past miraculously fed both crowds of 4,000 and 5,000 people with bread. The disciples didn't understand Jesus here at all and his use of leaven as a metaphor. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus impressed the importance of being on guard against false teaching, especially that in the service of religious hypocrisy. Jesus charged his disciples with three things. Ignorance, because they didn't understand what he was asking, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. 
unbelief because they were overly concerned with the supply of bread when they had seen Jesus miraculously providing bread on several previous occasions. Forgetfulness because they seemed to forget what had done regarding past miracles. Now verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, he again withdrew from the mainly Jewish region of Galilee and came to a place more populated by Gentiles. This was likely a retreat from the pressing crowds. Now Caesarea lies about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. The population was mostly non-Jewish people. Now, who do men say that I am? Jesus did not ask this question because he didn't know who he was or because he had an unfortunate dependence on the opinion of others. He asked this question as an introduction to a more important follow-up question. Verse 14 and 16, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah and the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Now Peter answered and said, you're Christ, the son of the living God. You see, people thought Jesus was John the Baptist, didn't know much about him, and they didn't know that Jesus and John had ministered at the same time, yet John, Elijah, and Jeremiah with other prophets were national reformers who stood up to the corrupt rulers of their day. Some thought Jesus was a herald of national repentance like John the Baptist, and some thought Jesus was a famous worker of miracles like Elijah or someone who spoke the words of God like Jeremiah. Perhaps in seeing Jesus in these roles, people hoped for a political Messiah who would overthrow the corrupt powers oppressing Israel. There's a tendency in all of these answers to underestimate Jesus, to give him a measure of respect and honor, but to fall short of honoring him for who he really is. Now, who do you say that I am? It was fine for the disciples to know what others thought about Jesus. But Jesus had to ask them as individuals what they believed about him. This is the question placed before all who hear of Jesus and who are judged by their answer. In fact, we answer this question every day by what we believe and what we do. If we really believe Jesus is who he says he is, it will affect every part of our life. Charles Spurgeon said, our Lord presupposes that his disciples would not have the same thoughts as other people had. They would follow the spirit and they would shape their views by those who are led by the spirit. Now he said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter knew the opinion of the crowd. While it was complimentary towards Jesus, it wasn't accurate. Jesus was much more than John the Baptist, or Elijah, or a prophet. He was more than a national reformer, more than a miracle worker, more than a prophet. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. <clears throat> this was an understanding that Peter and the, and the other disciples came to over time, just like us. In the beginning, they were attracted to Jesus as remarkable and unusual. They committed themselves to be his disciples or his students, Yet over time, they figured out that he was actually God, the Messiah, the one they had hoped would come. Now, 
Peter understood that Jesus was not only God's Messiah, but also God himself. He properly thought that to receive the title the Son of the Living God, in a unique sense, this was to make a claim about being divine. Now, the adjective living may perhaps have been included in the contrast of the true God versus the local deities. There was a lot of pagan worship in that area. Now, in verse 17 through 20, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, <coughs> Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. <coughs> and I also say to you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one who he was. Now, flesh and blood has not <clears throat> revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus reveals to Peter that he spoke by divine inspiration, even if he didn't know it at the time. In this, Peter was genuinely blessed, both by the insight itself and how it came to him. We too often expect God to speak in strange and unnatural ways. Here God spoke through Peter so naturally that he didn't even realize it was the Father who was in heaven that revealed it to him. Charles Spurgeon said, This also speaks to us of our need for supernatural revelation of Jesus. If you know more of Jesus than flesh and blood has revealed to you, it has brought you no more blessing people who just opine and try to figure out who Jesus is on their own. <clears throat> now, I say to you that you are Peter. This was not only a recognition of Peter's more Roman name, it was also a promise of God's work in Peter. The name Peter means rock, like the rocks that I'm on here. Peter was a rock and would become a rock. <laughs> God would transform him naturally and transform his character. Now on this rock, I will build my church. The words this rock have been the source of a lot of controversy. It's best to refer to them uh, as either Jesus himself, perhaps Jesus gesturing to himself, and he said this, or referring to Peter's confession of who Jesus was. Now Peter, by his own testimony, did not see himself as the rock on which the church was founded. He wrote that we are living stones. But Jesus is the cornerstone. We could say that Peter was the first believer. He was the first rock among many rocks. Peter said much in 1 Peter 2, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood <clears throat> to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. I will build my church. This is the first use of the word church in the New Testament, or in the Bible for that matter, using the ancient Greek word ecclesia. This was well before the beginnings of what we would formally think of as the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This shows that Jesus was anticipating or prophesying what would come from these disciples and his earliest followers and what he would do in and through their lives. The ancient Greek word ecclesia was primarily a religious word 
uh, it just meant group or a called out group. In describing the later group of his followers and disciples, Jesus deliberately chose a word without a distinctively religious meaning. Furthermore, this statement of Jesus was a clear claim of ownership, my church. The church belongs to Jesus. This was also a claim to his deity. What is striking is the boldness of Jesus' description of it as his community. Now, taken together, the promise is wonderful. He brings his people together in common. I will build my church. He builds on a firm foundation on this rock, the confession of Jesus. He builds something that belongs to him, his church. He builds it into a stronghold. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, as the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus also offered a promise that the forces of death and darkness can't prevail against or conquer the church. This is the valuable promise in dark and discouraging times. We can trust that Jesus said nothing will prevail against him and his church. Adam Clark said the gates of hell, the powers of the invisible world, in ancient times the gates of fortified cities were used to hold councils in and were usually great places of strength. Jesus' expression means that not the plots or the strategies or the strength of Satan and his angels will be able to destroy Jesus and his church. A slightly different view says that it is thus like he's saying that nothing can stand against Jesus. Now, this wraps up our time today, looking at this part of Matthew. I always like my beach talks by praying, by getting a fresh start with God, by hitting reset in my own heart and my life, to stop doing some things and to start doing some other things. Would you pray with me right now and just say, God, would you give me a fresh start? Would you help me to stop doing some things in my life and start doing others? Would you help me to hit reset today in your name? And as always, have a beautiful Thank you for your time. We would love to partner with you. Uh, water is a global problem. It's going to take as many partners as we can to help solve this problem. We'd love for you to partner with us. If you can go to our website at www.oceanwater.com. That's O-C-N-W-T-R.com. We'd love that. Thanks so much.